Today's episode of The Full 60 is brought to you by Game Time. All right, let's do a little pop quiz. Do you, and be honest, be honest here. Do you think NHL tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? I think I know the answer. You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. Honestly, that's if anything is more than two taps, I am out. That's good. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last-minute tickets. Welcome to The Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. This is a very exciting episode because this week's guest is Scotty Bowman, who obviously doesn't need an introduction, has won a million Stanley Cups. Um, He's the greatest coach of all time, so there's that. And not only that, um, Scotty at... But he's what I want to say, eighty-six years old now, and has incredible memory. Great storyteller, you know. Can talk about line changes in games from the sixties. Uh, just incredible, incredible insight. Um, it's 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 like having access to an NHL history book, and and I really in this conversation want to take advantage of that because who else can sit there and talk about? sitting in Toe Blake's office and what was hanging on the walls. And I'm also excited, as as you know, I, I'm a book nerd and, and love leadership and coaching. And finally, somebody got Scotty Bowman to do a book, uh, which we, we talked a little bit about. Um, Ken Dryden and Scotty Bowman did a book together called Scotty, A Hockey Life Like No Other. It's available for pre-order now. You can get it everywhere. I'm sure it's going to be everywhere uh, on October 29th. I'm about to pre-order as we speak. I can't wait to see this book. Um, should be should be fascinating. And so we got a little bit into. We started out talking about the book and the process and and how it went with Ken. And then we got into his life and his career and his influences and all the stuff that we like to do on this podcast. It was it was awesome. It was an honor to be able to do it. Um, Scotty was very generous with his time. And so let's jump right into it. This week's full sixty with Scotty Bowman. So I wanted to talk first about your book. And Ken Dryden convincing you to do it because I, I'm sure. Like, how many times have you been approached about doing a book? I have to imagine it's about a million. Uh, well, maybe, maybe half a dozen or so. I, I, I mean, for maybe the last. I mean, a lot of guys that I know, you know, Al Strachan, Eric Duhatcha, guys like that. But I never wanted to do a book because I thought when you did a book that you everything else stopped, you know, and, and, I, right. and uh, I, I was enjoying my time, uh, you know, doing a, still in hockey, but I also had, you know, trips and stuff like that. So I, I thought when you did a book, everything would stop. But <laughs> Ken, you know, Ken called me in uh, March, I think it was, of 2015, and he, you know, he said, not in a rush, and he said, uh, you know, you got a you, you got a lot of a lot of stuff that you should put in in writing. So that and then 
I think the best part was I we used to talk normally between probably November and March yeah. uh, that we would talk a couple of days a couple of days a week a couple hours a day you know so it didn't I mean I he, we would make an appointment we usually it was in the morning usually it was like you know the first thing in the morning nine to eleven yeah we he would record it and then so it didn't it it wasn't this uh it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Like I didn't have to stop everything. I I, I lived my normal life. You know. What right. I mean? Right. And and so what what did those conversations was he was it was he trying to get biographical permission or what what was what were those conversations about when you and Ken would chat? No, no. He wanted to. He wanted me since I had seen hockey since the late forties, and he explained it to me. He said, you know, he. He would like to do a story about, like, the book on me. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, you know, it was intriguing to pick to pick the dynasties of, of, of uh, each era. And then there was, I think there was eight or seven or eight dynasties. Yeah. And then, and then we, were, we, he got, he had a lot of binders that we studied together. And we, uh, we, 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 we didn't. It wasn't by our own choosing. It was by looking at we what we felt by looking at the the, the uh, standings and the playoffs and the type of players, and we picked a good team, uh, the best team out of each. Like you know, the the first one was the first dynasty we figured was the Detroit Red Wings from '48 to '55, seven seven consecutive first place finishes in the in the uh, you know in the NHL six division, six teams. And yeah. then, and um, cups in 50, 52, 54, 55. You know, four four cups out of the seven first place, and and then we zeroed in on, for instance, we zeroed in on the 52 team because of the fact that they won eight straight in the playoffs. Uh, they didn't have a goal scored on them in the four four games uh, that they played at home. You know, at the Olympia. Yeah. And, and then we went into the next dynasty. So that he he had the idea it was his idea that like we'd, we'd pair I don't know how we paired up the teams but we did and we had we had series we had four series uh, like we picked eight teams and then we picked four four series and then we picked a winner and then we had then we had uh, two series and then we had one series like you know so we had yeah. like a quarter quarterfinal semifinal and final you know yeah. And, that's uh, great, and that's that's one of the. I mean, that's. But he wanted to do. A, he wanted to do a story on on my, you know, my start in hockey and where my parents came from, and it was more more like a, not a biography. That's that would be it. Plus, plus the hockey part of uh, the teams, you know. Yeah, yeah. Did he ever? Did you guys get at why you got a Bill Cowley sweater? Because I was curious. Like that was I, I read somewhere that was your hero growing up, and I guess I was surprised by that a Boston Bruins sweater. Well, yeah, he. Well, we talked about my youth, and I yeah. said, you know, how I got started in hockey, and my my dad had come over uh, from Scotland, I think, in '29, and uh, you know, he he was a soccer guy, and um, and then all of a sudden. I think it was around 1938 or 39, maybe, because I was five or six at the yeah. time, and uh, we we started listening to no television. We listened to radio. I started listening to radio, and uh, we were able to get the Boston Bruin games 
just like it was the local channel, you know, right from Boston. I, re- I even remember the play-by-play na- uh, guy was a guy by the name of Frank Ryan. And I don't know how it happened, but, you know, um, I, I sort of listened. I mean, the, the crowd line was the number one line, and Bill Cowley was actually the – he won the scoring one year, but I, I, I don't know, I just uh, – I didn't see him play because we didn't have television. I didn't go to. I didn't see him play. I might have gone to. My dad might have gone to one. I know. I know. I. I don't remember. Bill. Yeah. Maybe we did see him play because I. I did see Dick Clapper playing number five, but yeah. somehow I got. I got into like with Bill Cowley and my my mother. My mother was working at Eaton's at the time, and somehow she got me uh, for Christmas a Boston Bruin. Uh, jersey and they she had to get a number put on it and uh not his name just his number yeah and that i don't know how it happened but that's that i was about five or six when that happened and i would listen to the the games were at 8 30 so we'd listen to, i'd listen my dad would let me listen to the first period yeah because normally you'd be in bed by then but he, when the bruins played i could listen to the first period and about nine o'clock the period was over and I, of course i'd go to bed and then the next morning, my dad would listen. He must have listened to the full game because he kept he kept the the, the, the scoring for me. Like you know, yeah. if the Bruins had a good team then, you know, like they won. I think they won the cup in '38 and '40. You know. Yeah. Uh, one of the yeah two two years out of four because they won two and the Rangers won two. Yeah. And, uh, that's how that's how I ended up with a Boston uh, jersey. My mother got it for a Christmas present. Oh, I love that. What did your dad do, Scotty? My dad was a blacksmith in Scotland, and he uh, things were getting tough in the mid twenties. Uh, different smithies were were they called a smithy was you know yeah. shoeing horses, putting uh, shoes on the horses and mainly, and um, you know the cars, automobiles, I guess were starting. I don't know, but he was he was getting tired of leaving. He started as a blacksmith apprentice at fourteen. And he worked for my grandfather, which is my mother's father, mm-hmm. my grandfather. And that's and he was 14 when he when he started as a as a blacksmith. But uh, they, his didn't close. But he uh, he left there because he he got a better I guess he got a more money or something. I don't know. But yeah. they kept closing, and he got tired of it. And then <clears throat> and then he he got an offer to come to Canada. Uh, the CNR were looking for. I don't know. They were looking for blacksmiths, and my my dad, uh, the the Canard Ship Line, offered free ship passage. So he and the three other friends came over uh, on a ship, uh, free ship passage, with not much in their pocket, ready to start working and shoeing the horses. Like when the CNR line was maybe being built, and you know the horses were pretty popular then, and and uh, and that's how he got to Canada. No kidding. And did he convert from a soccer to a hockey fan? Well, he was supposed to go to he was supposed to get off the ship and go to Winnipeg with yeah. but but they offered him to start work. That would have been 3 days later uh take the train, but they offered him uh, if you want to stay in Montreal and two of the four like there's four friends, there's four guys they are all friends of each other. Two stayed in Montreal and two went to Winnipeg. And uh, and and that's how he that's and then and then he became uh, the, the the CNR. He left the CNR because there was no more horse horse horses were getting they weren't ex- I mean they, they weren't as, it wasn't a popular trade. Right. So then he got a job in a um, 
he made he, he was a he was a, like a laborer, a lead a lead worker. He was making roofing flanges for a company, and uh, he worked his way up to be the shop foreman. But he was with that company from maybe early mid thirties or for sure uh, to uh, maybe uh, up to about the late sixties. Hmm. What do, what do you think you learned from him, or what what influence did he have on your career? Well, my dad was a hard worker. I mean, he used yeah. to leave at seven in the morning and go to work and come back at six. And you know, he never he never missed a day of work uh, for over. I think he, he got sick once. He got lead poisoning and he got in the hospital. But that's the only time he ever ever had to miss work. And uh, you know, just about uh, the fact that uh, you have aches and pains and things like that, but you you still gotta got to push on, you know, and uh, yeah. so I, I never missed a day of school. That's one thing I, I, I learned from him, and uh, I, I, I didn't get any awards for public school, but I got a, I got a book for perfect attendance, <laughs> grade one to seven. I remember that. I still have that book. Do you really? Oh, yeah, we keep everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you're, I mean, you're a bit of a collector, right? Like, you've got, I mean, you've got baseball Not cards. Not a bit of a collector. My wife and I collect. Well, she's the same. Yeah. But I got a lot of souvenirs. But I, you know, we, we, my dad, well, I guess my dad, he was from Scotland and, you know, he, he didn't have very much. And, uh, in fact, a quick story about him. I don't think it's in the book. Hmm. I know it is in the book. But uh, I coached, I coached my first uh, full-time job was 1956. I went. To Ottawa, I was offered a chance by Sam Pollock to go to Ottawa and be assistant general manager and assistant coach for the uh, team that had moved from Quebec. The uh, junior Canadians moved to Ottawa, and I stayed with them for two years. The first year was just Ottawa, and then it was Hull, Ottawa. But uh, when I got when I got to uh, Ottawa, we had a very good team. We had all the best all the best young players from Quebec, plus a few from Ontario. And mm-hmm. one of the guys we had was a player who was the best junior in Canada for a couple of years that I was, I was with Ottawa, uh, Ralph Backstrom. And he turned pro with Montreal in 58 after they'd won the two cups in 56 and 57. And he went in and he turned pro in, in uh, 58. And uh, he was from Kirkland Lake, Ontario. He won the rookie of the year. And he lived the first three years as a, as a I, I left home in 56 to go to Ottawa, and then I went to Peterborough. And I, I coached him in Ottawa for two years, and then he, he made the Canadians, and uh, he um, he stayed up with my parents, he, he, room and board, and, and just in a small little house uh, in Verdun, uh, the west side of Verdun, yeah. a place called Crawford Park. And he, he worked for, he, he, played, he played a lot of, my dad was a very big card player, and uh, he played, Ralph was a, was a wonderful guy, and he, he took to my parents, and they, you know, they got all his meals there. My mother was a good cook, and used to cook him steaks and everything, but, so he stayed there two or three years, and the, uh, the first time he ever got his first paycheck uh, with the Canadians in, uh, in October of, uh, be October 58, he was pretty excited, and he, he went out and he bought a couple, he bought, I think there was a tailor in Montreal, if you bought one suit and you're a hockey player for the Canadians, you got your picture in the program. He gave you another suit free, so he he, he must have, he came home one day with three suits. He, hmm. he was pretty proud of them and said to my dad, you know, uh, 
showed the put the jackets on and said, "What do you think of this one?" My father's name was was Jack Jack Bowman, and uh, my dad looked at him and said, "Ralph, they're all they're all nice, but he said you got to remember you can only wear one at a time." <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way my dad always like. My dad didn't have much growing up, so you get yeah. one suit and you wear it, and it, it, it wears out. You get another one. You, you don't go have get the other one. That's, that's the way it was, you know. And yeah. and he was a very handy man. He could he 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 even repaired shoes. I mean, he could he could do electrical work. He could do plumbing. Being you know, I mean, you're pretty handy. He was a handy man himself, and uh, that was a funny story about Backstrom. But anyway, uh, they became good friends, and then Ralph got married and. And uh, kept in touch with him when he was he had a pretty long career in the NHL, about yeah. maybe must have been fourteen or fifteen years. What was your dad's card game of choice? I love that he was a card player. Uh, he liked hearts, and he also yeah. he he liked cribbage. He was a very big cribbage player. Yeah, that was that was what he really liked, but not with young people. Maybe with people of his like younger, older, you know, but. He liked all the card games. He played cards. I mean, they had a lot of time, no television. My mother played cards, too. Right. What was, like, I'm just, like, I'm tying it together. Like, I mean, you're obviously known just so much for strategy and your ability to think. Like, how much of that, you know, where did that come from? Is that how they well, thought? I, after I, Well, after I got injured in junior and I, I couldn't play much more, mm-hmm. I took a job with the paint company, Sherwin-Williams, and I, I, I got an offer to get a job with the general stockkeeping. Uh, and, and that was an interesting job because in Montreal at the time, I had enough knowledge of French. I was probably going to – I stayed two years, 54 to 56, and before I got a chance to get into hockey. And uh, they also had two other companies, Martin Sr. and Low Brothers. Uh, the same paint would come out of a vat, and it would – go into different cans because mm-hmm. they, they had a, that was when they had three different three different uh, the same paint but sold by three different companies and uh, we had to we had to memorize oh I didn't have to do it but I, I did I mean I was working with numbers all the time yeah. so I, I we had code numbers maybe about six six seven numbers at a time but all all a different code for each the same paint but each of the different cans and it would come out of the it would come out of the vat and go into the cans, and I had to. I used to get all the reports. I was at an office job. I didn't work in the in the uh, plant, but uh, maybe that's where I started to. Uh, you know, you start to develop your. You have to. You know, you're working with numbers, so you. You know, you. It was easier to remember one number if it was the same paint, and remember another one as the paint. You know, when you're looking at reports, you. I, I got to memorize. You know, and that, yeah. that's. That's how I got started on that part. You know. And it's about that time where, like, you're during your lunch breaks, right? You're going to, you're watching practices. And... Well, the paint company was just at the foot of uh, Atwater. It was only about a, money, maybe a ten minute bus ride. Yeah. I didn't have a car or anything, and I, I, I they, the, the, the paint company built a new warehouse in a suburb, uh, which was about more than thirty five, forty five minutes on the bus. But I used to, I used to leave the paint company. I had a nice boss, and I was coaching. I was coaching a junior B team at night, but I I went up to the forum. Uh, I used to go up there about eleven o'clock. I was I was I was allowed to leave the the office about eleven, and my lunch my lunch hour was involved, and also the travel to the to the warehouse. So 
So it was roughly about an hour and 45 minutes uh, uh, that I had a space. So mm-hmm. I, I would leave just before 11, and I'd, I'd watch Montreal, I'd watch Canadians practice, and then I, not the whole practice, maybe for about 35, 40 minutes, and then it was a easy connection from there to the warehouse. And then I'd go to the warehouse. I, I used to do that about, I had to go to the warehouse quite a bit and check how many, uh, how much, what the stock was. So I went there maybe two or three days a week, and um, I would spend an hour or two at the warehouse and then come back to the office maybe 3 o'clock, three, like we, we worked till 5, 5.30. So that, I did that for, the, for two, two, two winters in a row. The winter of 50, uh, let's see, I started in the summer of 54. So it was the winter of 55, the 54-55 season, 55-56. And what did you, like, when you're watching those practices, what did you learn? Uh, well, I watched the drills. I, mm-hmm. I was coaching a junior B team, so I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to see the, you know, the practices. And right. I used to write down the drills, and uh, nobody else was in the building. I used to sit right right behind the bench. There was a seat there, and I, I had a pass to the forum anyways because, I had, I had played junior at the time, and I, I was coaching junior. It wasn't a team for Montreal, but they gave me a pass to go into the into the forum. So I, uh, you know, I used to go in there maybe twice, two, three times a week, and you know, watch watch the different players and and watch the, you know, the, I guess just everything, you know, yeah. about watching the goalies and watching the warm ups and the, and then I'd stay for about forty five minutes and I'd have to leave, you know. Yeah. Um, you you once said that Toe Blake didn't get the credit he deserved as an innovator, a guy for you know first to match lines and and you know had ch- charts and stats in his office. What what oh, do you yeah. remember about you know the, that his office and those conversations? Well, I, I then no, that was later on because yeah. I I went away to I coached Peterborough, and then I was a scout head scout Eastern Canada for sixty one, sixty two, sixty three. Then I came back to Montreal to coach the juniors in Mon- by that time they moved back to Montreal. And uh, and Toe was coaching the big team, and then I every Friday, every Friday uh, they would play Saturday and Sunday, of course, and maybe once during the week. So every Friday, I, I what I would do is I'd I'd meet him. He's in the same same uh, hallway, but he was at one end, and I was at the far end, and uh, not very far away. And then I I got to, he knew I coached the junior team, and we had we had a lot of players that were going to go up and play play for the Canadians, you know, so, uh, so that, that's what, that's what I was able to, like, you know, I'd spend, maybe after, he'd practice on Friday in the morning, Toe would, and he, and he, uh, he would go in his office after practice, and then, and then he would, uh, in those days, it was, see, there's only, only six teams, and yeah. he, he would, he would get all the sheets from the game, they didn't have any stats like we have today, he, yeah. he used to get all the sheets and and they did have sheets, and he would he would he must have knew who was on the ice for the goals for and who I mean he knew them probably in his mind. Yeah. But and then he showed me how he used to keep books on the players, and I I kept I, I did a little bit more. I used to take the clippings, the box scores, and tape them into a page. I have all those books still, and uh, oh Ken God. took some pictures of them. I think they're in the book, but not a lot of them. So, so I, uh, I got to know, uh, like he, 
you know, he, he used to like to match uh, defensemen sometimes, and, you know, and he knew, and I, I knew a lot of the players. I was around the same age as them anyways. I was only in my early 30s, uh, you know, at the time, so so he uh, he knew, and, I, and the Forum Coffee Shop, I used to, I knew all those players like Backstrom and Fergie and uh, John Ferguson and uh, Terry Harper, all those players that's in this mid-60s, and you know, he I, a couple of times he would say, you know, are you coming to the game tomorrow night, Saturday night? And he'd say, so-and-so is not going to play. I just checked. We, we we were not doing well against this opponent, like the team that we were going to play, Detroit or Chicago or somebody. And he said, if you're coming to the game, you're he, he's not going to play tomorrow night. And I'd, he'd, he'd tell me little things like that, and I'd go to the game and, Sure enough, the guy wouldn't play as much. But he he studied he studied matchups all the yeah. time. You know, he studied he studied why goals went in, like you know stuff like that. That you yeah. can't. It's hard to learn if you don't see it uh, from somebody else. You know. Right, right. At so you learn from him, and and I imagine Sam Pollock, kind of from the executive side, was a huge influence. Uh, Sam Sam was not a a person that uh, was a coach. He was a manager. No, right. And, right. You know, like he. He he did coach in junior when I got hurt, but he he was he was uh, that wasn't his forte. His forte was on the business side, on the planning side, uh, being ready, being prepared, you know, working hard, researching. I mean, you know, planning for now, planning for the future, yeah. and uh, you know, knowing all the rules. And you know, I, I was very fortunate because I worked for I worked under him in different capacities from '56 to 66. So I, before I came back to Montreal in 71, I'd worked under Sam for 10 years and, uh, either as a a coach, uh, the juniors, or when I was a scout, I reported to him. He, he wasn't the general manager, uh, from 56 till 64, he took over, but he was, he was really the, the guiding light of the team. You know, Mr. Selke was still the general manager, but he allowed Sam to, to really branch out into, he was responsible for the junior teams. He was responsible for they they had a they had a working agreement with Rochester when they came in as an American League team. Montreal and Toronto shared the players. Sam was sort of the guiding the, the manager of the team. So he, you know I I mean when he and he would have to travel a lot. So if I was with a junior team that we were coaching, he let me coach, and then he'd come back and he would coach. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, I learned all the hockey business from him. Yeah, I think you said once it was, that's where you learned it was a 24-7 operation, right? Like that's. Oh, yeah. Sam worked uh, long hours and, uh, you know, uh, he didn't get married till 61, I think it was. And I was I was with him five years before that. And we we traveled as much as we had to. You know, it was we didn't have a family or anything and both not married. So we had a lot of time, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to spend on hockey. Yeah. Uh, not in the summer as much as the winter. So how hard was it to to go to St. Louis? Was that you know, imagine is that you know Lynn Patrick approaching you or what's the what's the story there? Um, yeah, I coached Craig and uh, Lynn came up and saw us play. We had a pretty good team that year, young team, players that were heading to the NHL. But uh, Serge Savard, guys like that, and uh, uh, we had four or five that were going to make the NHL. Jacques Lemaire, and so he. Uh, you know, I, I guess it was the fact that uh, you know uh, it, it, it was it was a good time 
and I, I just, I was able to, uh, you know, to learn, to learn uh, how to, how to, how to run a team, and that, that's what, that's what I did, you know. Yeah, yeah. In St. Louis, you're saying? Well, no. Lynn Patrick didn't come to me first. He yeah. went to Sam. Oh, okay, okay. Because I had a contract. I had right, a contract. Sure. I had a two-year contract, and then he came to me after, and he said, "Would you like to come to St. Louis?" And I said, "Well." I said, Lynn, I do have a. I'd like to be a coach in the NHL someday. I don't. I don't know if I. If I, you know, I was young and that. And I said, but uh, you know, I don't know. I got a contract. No, no. He said, I'll. 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 Uh, I've done a lot of business with Canadians. Uh, you know, when I was with Boston, I'm going to be the manager of St. Louis. So uh, I'll take care of that. And uh, yeah, it was a tough call because yeah. uh, I. Uh, I had just bought a. A small little house uh, uh, with my parents uh, in uh, in Crawford Park uh, in 1966, uh, maybe a month earlier, and then the offer came up to go with St. Louis, a new a new franchise. And you know, uh, I think Sam Pollock understood that uh, Canadians were rolling along. Uh, you know, they had won the cup in the. They'd won the cup in uh, in '65 and '66. They didn't uh, that year. They they just had won won the cup again, you know. And uh, so uh, didn't look. It, it, you never, you know. It'd be like thinking about a young coach or a coach now that's very successful. Uh, maybe it's a little different, but there was not not that I wasn't going to be a coach in the NHL, but I, uh, there wasn't any plans in the near future for Montreal, you know. Right. Right, the path was kind of blocked. It wasn't. It wasn't yeah, a clear they path. won two yeah. cups and <laughs> and Toe coached '67. They Toronto won, and then he after he coached in '68, he decided that he'd he'd had uh, he'd had enough. Like you know, his thirteenth yeah. year, and he he wanted to get out. So, but I mean, he still was young. He wasn't that, he wasn't like in his sixties, I don't think, but. Maybe he was, but yeah. anyways, so that's how I got to St. Louis. So what's interesting to me about that kind of era, like you've you've said, you know, as a, as a coach, you have to command respect, and I and I would think that's easier later in your career, right, when you have all the cups and you're walking into yeah. Detroit with all that. How do you, as a young coach, go to St. Louis, a veteran team, and still kind of command that same respect? Well, really fortunate being an expansion team because. You know, the draft, they provided the NHL, they provided the new teams with about three NHL caliber players from their own, from their existing teams. Because see, see what happened is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the protected list was, I think, 11 or 12. Yeah. And they gave up number 13. And then they gave up, uh, they took back 14. And they, we only got three NHL players. So... So uh, it, it provided an opportunity for players that were veteran, you know, that were that were really gonna, you know, the, the players were were very. I was lucky in St. Louis because we had veterans that, you know, when you think about it, we we drafted we drafted Al Arbor, and yeah. Al Arbor Al Arbor was from Rochester. He'd been a playing coach. I uh, got to know him. Of course, he did a great job for us as a playing as our captain. Uh, we, we we you know we. We got some good veteran players that were um, they were happy to get in to stay in the NHL, you know. Right. Like Glenn Hall uh, was still in his prime, but uh, you know he was in his mid thirties. 
then we had uh, we had uh, Doug Harvey as a, a farm team coach, and then later a player. So they're the guys that uh, it made it pretty 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 easy for me because they were all that was like a rebirth for all those players, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I was fortunate. I, I I ran a lot of stuff by them. I was uh, I, you know I was a young coach that I wasn't uh, I was I mean these guys were so successful. Every one of them. Every one of them was a winner. Like Al Arbor won many cups with uh, Rochester. Toronto used to bring him up in the in the for the playoffs. He won two or three with them, so he knew he knew all about winning. And uh, Doug Harvey, Dickie Moore with Montreal, Glenn Hall was a was a winner with Chicago. So um, the veteran players that we got were um, were were just so pleased to be able to keep continue their career you know right right and they knew how to win and yeah they they i mean i'm you know i didn't i didn't uh i didn't do very much without checking with them you know and i was lucky <laughs> because some of the things that they would tell me you know um would 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 come to fruition you know and uh uh even in the practices like you know doug harvey was such a uh a, a great player but he he was he was uh, as a as a he was he was assistant coach uh, with me and played with me and uh, you know he, we used, I used to run practices and I do uh, I do drills and uh, I do drills and he would uh, you know he he would say you know it's okay to do those drills but when you think about it. Uh, the uh, the players are fresh coming down. Why don't you tire the forwards out? Because in the things like that, I could yeah. I could I can understand. He he was such a he he was such a um, uh, his high hockey IQ was so 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 great. Like he he said to me, why don't you try to try to try to make them a little bit more fatigued before you let them come down on on us? Because that happens a lot in the games. Right. So I, I would implement what these guys. You know, would be talking about uh, Glenn Hall wanted shots from a certain position. Uh, he he, he, uh, he had a, he, I think he had a good glove, a very good glove, like the, not like it is today, maybe, but he wanted shots on his stick side, that, it, like you know. So uh, then they wanted shots. Uh, some of the goal. Then we got Jock Pont the next year, and he was another guy that was an innovator. We, we had him for two years. So I mean, all those veteran players. Um, they provided a lot of insights that a, a coach wouldn't would not be able to have himself. Right, right. And then they go on. I mean, you have Al Arbor obviously goes on to huge success. Red Berenson. I mean, it's it, you know it continues from there. And yeah, they were they were like they they were players that were uh, and everyone was different. You know, like Red Berenson was a player that was a terrific junior, a great college player came to Montreal at the wrong time, you know, same as yeah. like Ralph Backstrom should have been uh, a superstar uh, in the NHL. He was, a, he was a good player. He won the rookie of the year, but you know, he's a young, young player. He wins the Memorial cup. He comes up to Montreal. They've got five centermen ahead of him. They got Beliveau, Henri Richard, they got Marshall and they got Goyette. And now Backstrom comes in, you know, right. so the, right. he starts off as a third line center and Beliveau and Henri Richard were two of a kind. I mean, they were great players. And for the next decade, uh, he's he's still with the team, but he's he's got to change his whole game around. And 
So sometimes you get with a team like that, and, and it changes everything around. You know, you don't you don't get the same opportunity to be a, a, a star. You know, right, right. So you go to Montreal. I love this. And it's a different thing where you have you have these are these are stars. This is this is the Montreal Canadiens. And so, you know, you've you've often said, you know, you've you've got to take these great players and and max them out. Right. And get them to find another level. Like what, what was your approach in doing that? Like, how do you take players who are already the best at what they do and, and get that little extra out of them? Well, I think, I mean, you can't fool around. You can't you can't try to fool them for sure. They know the game as well as you do. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I used to, I used to try to, uh, I was very inquisitive. I used to ask a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, uh, when you look at players that have been on a winning, a winning program, uh, it's not, it's, it'd be foolish to try to go, go, go with your ideas if you haven't been there yet. And I think that's what I, what I learned from those guys is that yeah. they had the, uh, they had the knowledge that, what it took to, 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 to win. And, uh, you know, you'd be foolish not to just tie your, your cart to their horse, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Larry Robinson told a great story from that era. He said something along the lines of we, in seven years, we'd never lost a game on the West coast, but we would come back in that first practice. You would just run them ragged. <laughs> what was the strategy there? Um, I think I never, I maybe never wanted them to know what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what yeah. the circumstance, but you know, uh, going we like when I think back to things we used to do, uh, and I think about it now, it like we would go to we'd go to California because there was no teams in Western Canada at that time. We go to California, and I would uh, we'd only go for like two well, L.A. and and uh, Oakland. And I would keep the players on the same clock as we were. I don't know why we did it, but if it was St. Louis, it was two hours. If Montreal, it was three hours. And we would, we would, we'd gear our. We'd never go on the clock of the of uh, uh, the Western time. We'd stay on the Eastern clock if we were there for two, only like two games and three nights or something, you right. know. And uh, so we came back and. Uh, it was, we were still on the Montreal time. We weren't on the on the on the uh, Western time, and and I think sometimes I would I would surprise them, and and um, even if uh, sometimes they're they're expecting a tough practice, and then we wouldn't practice, and then you know I, I just I, I just um, I don't know why I did it, but I did it. I, I think it was more to let, not let them know what I was what I had planned, you know. Yeah. Yeah, there's a quote. I don't. I don't remember who said it, but it was something along the lines of, you know, what human nature dictates, you would do the opposite, right? So, like, what you're expecting, <laughs> be ready for the opposite. Yeah, do the unexpected. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I'm curious in that era. Like, there's there's been stories. I mean, told a million times. But one of the things I'm always fascinated by is how, you know you would show one look during the regular season and then game one of the playoffs or whatever. And you, you would do this with the Russian five in Detroit or whoever, like how much was your coaching different or, or in the regular season kind of leading into the playoffs? How much was it different come playoff time? Like you didn't want to show well, too much. I think, I think when you're, uh, when you're, when you're in a, a league like the NHL, uh, I used, I used to figure my own mind. Uh, when you get, when you get something that's working, it's only a matter of time till it's maybe not going to work, or, or or 
somebody's going to pick up on it. Right. And uh, it was always uh, like a, maybe a suspicious type of a of a thinking, but uh, I didn't. That's that's what I did with it. The, I was so amazed how how effective and successful those Russian five were, and also we had another bunch of players that weren't Russian, and I didn't want them players to think that the game was just the way it's played by the by the Russians, and it would be good to have more than one way to play the game. Right. And that's why maybe I just didn't want to play them as much, and I wanted to save something. I wanted to save something different that the other team wouldn't be able to expect and, mm. and, and just try to give them. It, it would be the same as like line in line match. I didn't match lines all the time, but uh, what I would what I w- what I would want to do is if the game was going along as we expected, it, and we're, if we're having a good game, uh, uh, I didn't want to make any changes in anything. But if things were, if if we weren't doing well and the other team was was uh, handling us pretty well, I wanted to give them something else they had to change. I wanted to, I wanted to force change yes. so that they would have to make decisions. And I, I generally kept two players on the same line. I didn't, I didn't jumble. It looked like it sometimes that it was mixing everything up, but I usually kept two, two uh, wingers together or a centerman and a winger, something like that. Uh, and then added a third party, uh, just move it up. So I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure the other team, didn't know what to expect, but I didn't match all the time, and it's hard to match. And some teams, if a team was a good forechecking team uh, on us, uh, like uh, if 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 they, uh, you know, if they if they're forechecking very well and you're 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 matching all the time, uh, they're going to get some situations that are that are pretty handy for them. So it would depend how the other team would be playing, and uh, we didn't have the same. I mean. You didn't have analytics. You didn't have another co. I had a second coach as a as more a development coach, but we, you didn't have a lot of lot of people on the bench. So you you had you had to be ready even on your when you're coaching uh, and you're coaching forwards in defense. I mean, you, you're always thinking of your next move because you have to have the players on the bench had to know uh, who was going to replace the players on the ice when they came off. So you, you're always it sort of forced you to think ahead all the time. Yeah. And you, you know, you can't be daydreaming and you can't be uh, spectating. You got to be thinking, what's my next move? So that's, it's, I guess it's like, a, it's not a chess game, but it's, it's similar that you have to know your next move. Right. Right. It's funny. I think about now, if you would have done a lot, you know, that kind of thing or save things for the playoffs or, or abandons, you know, kind of hold off in this era where every single move, every single day is analyzed, you know, on social, people would go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, even, even like, I didn't want the other team to know how we were lining up uh, with players and, and, you know, well, injuries were a little different than they are now. Uh, they did divide. They knew about the injury because they could find out from the player. But you, you just wanted to make sure. I wanted to make sure that they did not know what was going through my mind. And uh, and and the surprise element to me was important. Yeah, around um, you were talking about the Russian five around that time. I think yeah, you you had those the red and blue bandy gloves from Tarasov. Can you tell the story of that? Do you do you have those still? I have them. Yeah, I had them. I just just, just noticed them uh, 
they're in my uh, collection. I just noticed them about a week before we came down, but uh, they were given in Montreal. I uh, I coached in uh, in Montreal in the mid seventies. We he wasn't coaching on the on the, the game that we played the Russian national team in New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy five. He came to the game. Okay. He wasn't the coach though, uh, but he was more or less a, a dignitary. And then we because they had they had a we both worked out for a year a day or two before uh, because that's the way the schedule was so. He, they asked me if I wanted to have an interpreter, and I, he wanted to speak to me. So I said, sure, I'd like to. So he watched our practice, and then after the practice, met with him, and he, he, he said, well, you know, because the Russians' practices at the, in those years were so much different than North America. There was nobody standing around. They would often have an extra goalie in the corner. They would. They do one drill and there's another drill. It was, it was, it, it looked like how could they organize something like this and not, and not be bumping into each other or something, you know? <laughs> and he said, he said to me, well, out of the seven drills that you use in practice, he thought four of them were of a, a, a real top variety. The other three was too much standing around. He didn't, he didn't like people. He said, you're going to practice on the ice. You can't, you can't, you can't be spending your time. Just having every hockey's played with speed. So, right. and then he, then he, then he, and he said, then he watched our team. He liked, he really liked our defense. He liked because we had the best defense in the league. We had three all all of famers. And he, he came up and he said to me, you know, one, he said, you you got a great team. That would be the seventy six seventy seven team that was that that would be coming into four. And he said. Lafleur is a good example. If he's like a lot of the players that I have, uh, he's an offensive dynamo. But sometimes in their own end, they get a little confused. Should they cover the point? Should they cover the down low? And he said, "What I what I had was good defensemen that could move the puck to each other. They were great at moving the puck up the ice. We didn't. We had a center line too, though." And he said, "I I think." You'd like to have Lafleur leave your zone when you're in possession of the puck. Why don't you have him take off like we do? Take off down the sidelines, down the sideboards. The left defenseman on their team is going to see him, and being Lafleur, that defenseman's not going to be able to stay in as a as a as an attacker. He's going to you know because if he goes if he goes near him and the puck hasn't come to him yet, he's going to have to back out. And he said his philosophy was you're. We're better off to have, um, rather than have five on five in our end, you're better to take Lafleur out of the end zone, take their left defenseman out of the end zone, and play four on four, and mm. there won't be any confusion. He said that's what they did. And I remember in the even in the 72 series when they finally lost, but it was a tough series, the Russians always were able to leave and, and cause havoc in the neutral zone by just leaving leaving the defensive zone before the puck would leave there, we never do that. We always had the same theory: don't leave the zone until the puck leaves. And they would leave early, and they would pull your defenseman out of the offense. They couldn't they couldn't stay in. They, I mean, they, they could stay in, but they could get caught. Right. They could end up breakaways. And of course, now there's no center line, and uh, they they had that they had that down pat pretty good. So. 
I, I talked to him for about 40, 30, 40 minutes through an interpreter, of course, and uh, I, I appreciate it. And then he, when it was over, he, he said, you know, you got these big gloves all the time. It's hard to get to your whistle when you want it. And he gave me a set of, he, he, he got the trainer to get me a, a set of, they were, they, when he gave me the gloves, they might've been a spare pair, but they were the red and blue with the CCCP on it, you know? Yeah. That's so amazing. Kept, and I used them too. So did you ever utilize that strategy with Guy Lafleur? Well, you know, we were so successful. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 uh, yeah, we did a lot because, Lafleur and Shutt were great wingers that that uh, played a, as a tandem, but they they uh, really took off when when Jacques Lemaire. We put him about, uh, but maybe after my second year, we put Lemaire in at center, and Lemaire was a great two-way def- centerman, and Lemaire played down low. He played the Russian system. Lemaire Lemaire played with the two defensemen down low. And Lafleur and Shutt got an awful lot of breakaways, two, two on two, two on one, by just leaving the zone early. And they, of course, they were great skaters, and they could finish. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we did that. Uh, we didn't do it all the time because you know it depends where you're playing, who you're playing against. But they could do it. They could do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and, and then how much of that, I don't know how much you would have studied the Russians, but when you do get the Russian five in Detroit, how much did you kind of lean on that? that time well I, I didn't mean when i we got the fifth one uh, i think we got uh, igor larionov last uh we had the other we, when i got there there was when i got there the uh, konstantinov was playing with lidstrom and fedorov was was coming into his just starting it was his second or third year but fedorov was one of the unique russians he was much better defensively before he was better a really good offensive player and that's how he made the the red wings before i got there he was a good defensive center good on face-offs unusual like for a russian and and uh so when i got there it was sergey fedorov and there was uh latimer konstantinov with kozlov just got there at the same year i got there but he was playing in the minors he was playing in adirondack so he, he did come up that first year and then we had the three, and then we made the trade to get uh, Fatisov and then Larionov. Uh, and you know the thing, the thing was, uh, I didn't, I didn't think about just getting those guys to make five. And then when we got five, I, 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 I th- I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Slava Fatisov said, you know, why, why don't you try us? It wasn't the same as he had with when he was a Russian five, but he and Igor, he was a defenseman and Igor was a center mm-hmm. on the original Russian five. So we, but Sergei was such a good centerman. Igor said, I'll play on the wing. I'll, I'll, I'll line up. And he wasn't as good on faceoffs. So Sergei played center. <coughs> Igor, <coughs> Igor lined up on right wing and Kozlov was left wing and Fatisov played with Konstantinov. And, uh, you know, I, we used them in practice a couple of times, uh, and then we sprung them into a game. And I mean, I didn't, I couldn't believe all the plays that they were making. <laughs> so I, I remember, I remember, I told Slava one day, I said, "I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, keep it, keep doing it. I, I don't want to get involved in it." So I didn't have anything to do with the Russian five. I just put them together, but I, they knew where to go. Yeah. I mean, they knew from playing the system in Russia. And uh, it was a unique system that I, I didn't want to use it all the time. Sure, sure. 
Did you? So I, I'm always curious, was was moving surrogate to defense. Was that a motivational thing for you, or was it like what was the thought process behind that? No, we had injuries. We had okay. a couple of okay. defensemen that were injured for I didn't know how long, but it ended up about five six weeks. But Sergey Sergey uh, was always conscious. I mean, he's a big man, a good strong player. We had we had good centermen, you know, and I, I we had uh, Eiserman, we had Draper, we had this Larry. Uh, um, uh, Larry Onoff. We had a lot of guys, so yeah. so what? It was hard to get enough ice time for for everybody, and uh, we got the injuries. And he was always a great skater. He was good defensively. So I I can I I don't know. He, was, he wasn't too. Con, I don't think he was too uh, endorsing it at the beginning. And then I <laughs> yeah. said to him, "But Sergey, if you go on defense instead of playing eighteen or nineteen minutes." You probably, if you do a good job, you're going to get it up into the mid 20s or like 23, 22. So he he embraced it. And uh, when I first started with him, I actually I think I actually put him with Lidstrom because we didn't know what he was going to do. But he was so good, we took him we took him away and put him with somebody else. And uh, I mean, he he just played for about four or five weeks on defense. I mean, he was so good on defense because of his skating and his offensive ability, uh, you know, and, and, and he was always a good defensive player. So yeah. he was a natural to play defense, but we, we, you know, we put him back up, but he got more ice time on it. He endorsed it. He liked it. And, uh, he didn't complain. And, but then when our injured guys came back, we, we put him back up, you know, but he could have been, a, as a, I, I remember actually Wayne Gretzky told me a few years after that, he, he was always amazed of, he always thought Fedorov was such a great player, but he said, you know, it's such, it's such a unique talent to, to go back and play defense like he did. He said, I could never play, even think about playing defense. Neither could Mario. And he also mentioned neither could Yarmir Yager. He said, we, mm. we didn't have the ability to skate backwards like, like this guy can. But it, it's a true story. Like, there's not many forwards that can go back and play defense. You know, there's a few that have, that have done it in time. Mark Howe was probably as good as there was around. He was a good winger, but he moved them back on defense. And uh, the the other, the only other one I ever remember, see, Red Kelly moved the other way. He moved up into, uh, Red Burns, though, he was an ordinary winger, and he moved back on defense. The only one I ever remember uh, in my day watching players and I checked this thing after because I got to know him in Peterborough with Dick Clapper. Dick mm. Clapper made the all-star team in the early 30s for Boston as a right winger. And then he they, they had defense injuries and, and retirements when they had their really good teams in the late 30s, the ones I was listening to. And Dick Clapper moved to defense and he made the all-star team. Uh, he went from, sorry, he went from right wing to defense. So that was he was one of the few early guys that did it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Brett Burns, and just to to wrap up here. Oh, first I wanted to ask you. You, you said the one thing you, you you watched today's game, and you would love a shot at coaching three on three. So, what would your strategy be in three on three, overtime? I think it would be on. Uh, uh, I like puck possession. Yeah, I, I think you know. Well, first of all, the the conditioning and the skating has to be there, but the, the puck possession is so crucial. You don't make any chance plays. Right. You know, you don't make any plays that you don't think. I, I think there's a few that might work, but you 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 know when you give up the puck on three on three, the 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 uh, chances 
turn so quickly the other way. Yeah. It's not like a regular game. So, you know, you, and you got to be careful because how long can they stay on the ice? You know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's about changing. It's about, you know, shift, shift length. Uh, like I was watching a game the other night, and uh, it, it's a high pace. Three on three is such a pace. Yeah. Because there's no there's no coasting. I mean, nobody's coasting. If they are, then they're getting into trouble. Right. The other night, Buff, uh, Buffalo was playing against um, Columbus, and Jack Eichel. He, they got him playing really good hockey. This guy's a really good coach, Ralph Kruger, and he played him the first shift on the uh, three on three. He extended the shift a little bit, and he, he took maybe a little longer. I don't know how long he was out there, but he came off, and the the next group came on. And the guy didn't stay on. He didn't stay on the ice very long, like mm-hmm. his replacement. So maybe half the time of what Jack Eichel had the first shift. So the second, the third shift, sometimes teams, you know, you 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 want your good players on the ice. So Ralph Kruger said after the game, he he, he now he looks back. He wishes he wouldn't have done it, but he put Eichel on the third shift. So he had first and third. And he was a little fatigued, and he and he lost the puck in the corner when they scored the winner. But mm. you know, it's it's something that happens. Like you know, you can't have tired guys on the ice three on three. Yeah. If you have tired guys on the ice, because tired players make mistakes. That's how goals get in, you know. And that's yeah. why I really I was a stickler. I got that from Toe Blake a long time ago. He said, "How you change players uh, on the fly." Is probably the most important part of the game, coaching. And he said, "I he and it's true. Like you see, when players come to the bench from the ice, sometimes they 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 could they could sprint a little faster because I mean they're not that. I mean they're tired to make a long shift, but to go an extra five feet. Uh, and I I would blow whistles and horns, and I wanted our team to change." Uh, I, I, that's a big a big issue now if you because if you get fresh players on the ice and now they're very short shifts 35 yeah. 30 if you get if you get a, a shift chain well in three on three for sure but even in a regular strength if you get if you get because the game is so high paced if you get a chance to get players from the ice to come off and other ones to come on and do it quickly uh, you'll get you'll have an edge. It won't be for long, but you'll have an edge till the other team can get off. Right, right. And I still think that's an important. I think um, uh, changing changing as play goes on is still. I mean, now players often come off. At, they come off when they don't have the puck. They come off. You know. Uh, I mean, I, I know it's so hard now because the game's so fast. But I think sometimes players come off uh, ir- irresponsible. You know, they like we used to say, you can't, you you couldn't come off the ice. If you're going to put your team in a position that they're going to be short-handed, right, right, and uh, you know it's it's a, but three on three is an intriguing part of the game, and and it, it it is a bit of a it is a bit of a lottery. I mean, you know, you because but if you give up that good chance, uh, and we see some great three on threes, but the, sometimes the reason that they go three on three uh, great is because the goalies are making saves that 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 are exceptional. Right, right. All right, so if that's a portion of the game you'd want to coach, is there a, are there any players now that you look at you're like, oh, I would love to have a game behind the bench with this guy on my team? Oh, I mean, there's so many now. <laughs> there's so many good. There's so many good young players now. Yeah. That 
you know, I, I don't, I see some, I don't see the West as much as I, I'd like to, but you know, the Western league, uh, the Western part, but yeah. you know, when you, when you, when you, I, I, I like to watch young players. I, I mean, I even like to watch young players that aren't even in the NHL. I, I mean, I, if I can see a good, a good youth game, I mean, I don't see many down in Florida right now because yeah. there's only one all-star team and usually that they're hard to get at. But in the fall or the spring, and I, I like to watch young players. I like to know who's coming up, you know, mm-hmm. into the NHL. But I like the young players that come into the NHL, you know, uh, the ones that are in. Not every. I mean, I just I saw Jack Hughes playing in Buffalo. In the, uh, I'm anxious to watch him now, you know, because yeah, yeah. he's a number one pick. He he didn't have the same uh, uh, pedigree of playing in in a, in a major junior league, you know. But he's he's an exceptional talent, you know. He's such a great skater, and he works hard. And I saw him in a I saw him in a, in a, a development game, but I haven't. I only saw one NHL game, and it was a back-to-back in Buffalo, and their team had a tough game. But I'm anxious to see him play over the course of the season. You know. Yeah. Do you do you see a difference in the young kids now? Like we hear how better prepared they are, how much even individually skilled with the skills coaches are getting. Do you see a big difference than younger players twenty, thirty years ago? Yeah. They. Yeah. They. They. It's year round. They yeah. got all this. You know, the skilled people now, like the thing I noticed the most is in my day, you could pick out exceptional skaters and you, and, and, and people that weren't exceptional skaters could play. Yeah. Now you go to a game, you could go to a youth game, you could go to a, a top-notch a midget game, and it's hard to pick out a player that isn't uh, as, it's hard to pick out a bad, a poor skater. Mm-hmm. Like they, they just don't have. They all they 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 they've all improved their skating. Players now in my day couldn't improve their skating after a certain level. Now they right. can, you know, and 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 that's why I think the game is so fast is because they there's very few of these great players. I mean, I mean, I don't know now if you can play in the league like before. If you were a a high IQ player, your career could could go on and on. As long as you knew how to play the game, you could play. Uh, but I'm not, not. I'm not sure now if players are going to be able to play in their into their mid 30s if they if they've lost a, a step or two. It's not going right. to be as easy. Right. Let's yeah. hear like guys. It's like okay, these guys are peaking at 24, 25, which is crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. can they keep the same speed up in the early 30s? Right. Right. Well, Scotty, thanks so much for doing this. This was a well, lot of fun. You're welcome. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Good luck with the book, I'm sure. I, I I laugh. I saw you coming out with a book at the same time as Nicholas Lindstrom, so you're going toe-to-toe with one of your... Oh, yeah, but there's nine books, though. But Nick's, <laughs> Nick's is more about... Ours is... Mine is a little different with uh, with the, um, the, the trying to pick the best team ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. well great. Well, thanks, Scotty. Thanks so much. I want to thank Scotty Bowen for joining the podcast this week. That was awesome. That was really, really cool to do. I, I sincerely hope you enjoy it. Uh, I would want to encourage you to check out his book when it comes out with Ken Dryden. The book is called Scotty, A Hockey Life Like No Other, and it is available on October 29th, but you can pre-order it anywhere right now if you want to and get out front of that one. Should be should be awesome. I'm I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, Also want to remind subscribers of The Athletic that we are building out the archives. 
of old episodes of the full 60 because so many of them are timeless and they're just long conversations with people in hockey um, about their paths and, and their influences and all of that stuff. Um, but this week's archive that we're adding is one of my favorite episodes. It's the Team North America oral history of the greatest game ever played. If you have never listened to that one, it's so good. So uh, subscribers to The Athletic, be on the lookout for that. I think that's dropping on Friday if it's not up already. Uh, pulling that one back out of the archives. It is, it's a really fun listen because that Team North America with Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews was incredible. It was fun to cover and also played one of the greatest games ever. Be on the lookout for that episode if you're a subscriber to The Athletic. That's a little bonus for our subscribers. Um, and last thing here, I just wanted to ask a favor for longtime listeners of The Full 60. If you have a second, now that we're back out in the wild, uh, I want to build out the reviews and the ratings. So whatever you're on, if you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple Podcasts, whatever, um, however you're listening to this, if you can give this a quick review, assuming you like it. If you're not a fan, then <laughs> you could sit this one out. But I would greatly appreciate it. Um, and a shout out to everybody who did that last week. It's a huge help. Um, and, I, and I greatly appreciate it. All right. Thank you uh, so much. This was a lot of fun. This is a great one. Um, thank you so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>